I'm Fern. And I'm Eileen. And we're the hosts of Crime Lapse True Crime Podcast. We cover a variety of criminal cases, including mysteries, murders, cold cases and more, from all across the globe. We focus on the facts while telling the story, always keeping the victim in mind. You can find us on your favourite podcast platform by searching for Crime Lapse, or find us on social media where we post behind the scenes, regular updates and hints to our newest episodes. We promise you won't regret it. Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. Before we get started, um, a quick errata from lawyer Stephanie, quote, in the last episode discussing the Francis Hall case, I erroneously stated the sudden passion defense could result in reducing Hall's sentence to a range of two to ten years by prevailing on the defense before jury. I should have stated the jury's acceptance of the defense could reduce the sentencing range to two to twenty years in prison. I misspoke and didn't catch it at the time, clearly talking while tired. End quote. So there you have it. Um, We are an entertainment podcast, yeah, but we like to pretend that we are striving for diligence and accuracy in all things. So, okay, this episode is going to be a little different. Real life kind of reared its pretty little head on us, so we are taking a break from recording a new episode this week. Instead, you'll get to listen to what is basically the pilot episode of the show. This is the very first episode that I recorded prior to lawyer Stephanie graciously doing me the honor of consenting to talk into a microphone about Texas law. (laughs) Um, It's a little story that I grew up with in my hometown, the charming tale of the Toddville Murder Mansion. So buckle up, buttercups, and let's get into it. Did y'all ever hear about the Toddville Murder Mansion? When I was a kid, uh, growing up in the Seabrook area south of Houston, everybody knew about the murder mansion out on Toddville Road. This place had been abandoned since the 80s, so it was just this big, empty gigantic, ugly mansion sitting on the shore of Galveston Bay. You drive along Toddville Road, parallel to the shoreline, and all of a sudden there'd be a break in the trees, and there would be this huge empty lot with a wrought iron and brick fence all around it, and squatting in the middle of this lot, like hunkered away, uh, as far away from all the edges as it could get, like it hated everything, was the mansion. It was just this enormous brick block just sitting there. Uh... And it stood empty for for years. It was a rite of passage. If you were a teenager growing up in that area, uh, it was a rite of passage to like loiter in the middle of the night out on Toddville Road and dare each other to sneak in. And if you did get up the balls to sneak in, uh, you would come back with stories of graffiti all over the walls or broken windows covered with iron bars. Or uh, if you were really daring, you find the blood stain at the base of the spiral stairs. This place filled up the imagination of child me. Uh, We would drive by it and 
it looked like a prison, but like a really fancy prison, the kind of place where you lock up the people who are dangerously insane, but also filthy rich. Or if not a prison, then uh, it was a factory, uh, the kind that was filled with workers like little Oliver Twists everywhere running around with their frayed flat caps and smudges of soot on their little pinched faces. And there would be like an evil overseer who would lock the doors and then everybody inside would die in a tragic fire. I was a weird kid. Anyway, basically, this house looked like anything but a home, anything but someplace where somebody would actually try to build a life. It was the early 90s before I met this place. Back in its heyday when it was intact, it was still ugly, uh, but it was absolutely infamous in the Seabrook area. Seabrook was a mostly rural fishing town. They didn't exactly have a surplus of millionaires building gigantic hideous mansions, so everybody in town knew this house. So it had to have been with a special cocktail of curiosity and trepidation that a Seabrook police officer turned his cruiser down the quarter-mile stretch of driveway from Toddville Road to the front of the mansion, uh, responding to a welfare check on the homeowner. See, the homeowner's employee had noticed his boss didn't show up for work that day, and then he got a phone call from a local convenience store asking why some random guy who was not his boss was trying to cash checks in his boss's name, so naturally he called the cops. The officer starts making the long rounds around this enormous mansion, trying to find anybody on the premises or an unlocked door, anything. Uh, all the doors are locked. Nobody's there. There's no cars present. All he can see is through the windows of the place, absolute chaos. Uh, things are torn up. There's furniture's knocked over. Windows are broken. It's insane inside. So he's getting a little concerned. He starts to get around towards the garage side of the house and he can see through one of the windows what looks like somebody lying on the floor. So he gets over to the garage and he sees a pool of blood seeping out from underneath the door leading from the garage into the house. So he gets that door open and he finds a very dead body. And that officer immediately calls for backup and for Seabrook Police Chief Bill Kerber, because when you find a 34,000 square foot crime scene and the cold dead body of Seabrook's only millionaire with the back of his skull blown off with a shotgun, you call your boss. William Gerald List is described in his autopsy report as a well-nourished Caucasian male aged 57 years. Bill, as he's better known, was born in 1927, which sounds like a long time ago, but we're going to march forward through these decades pretty quick, so don't worry. Uh, by 1959, see, uh, he was married with two kids in the great state of Ohio. He was also convicted and sent to prison for three years for molesting teenage boys. By the time he got out of prison in 1962, his wife had divorced him, his children had disowned him, his reputation was ruined, his business was shot, so he did what many a burnt bridge sociopath has done throughout the history of our great nation. He packed up his bags and he moved to Texas. Once he got down to Texas, into the Seabrook area, uh, he started up a tractor-trailer business. And what I mean by tractor-trailer is the kind of big rig trucks that you see on the road hauling really large industrial equipment from uh, point A to point B. And this business got him in good with the oil industry, which, for better or worse, uh, has and probably always will reign supreme over coastal Texas. And if you can get in good with the oil industry, you're pretty much set for life. 
Now, personality-wise, by all accounts, Bill was a belligerent asshole. Uh, he was argumentative, uh, opinionated, aggressively opinionated, and entitled to an, a compliant audience for those opinions in that special way of middle-aged white men everywhere. And But somehow, uh, despite all of that, or perhaps because of it, by the 1980s, this blue-collar ex-con child molester was a self-made millionaire living the American dream out by the bay. To celebrate his success, Bill decided to build himself a retirement home. This is where the mansion comes into play. And he went about it with a uh, utilitarian lack of whimsy. He bought a four and a half acre plot of prime Galveston Bay coastland and he clear cut it, just mowed down every single tree and started pouring this gigantic concrete slab in the middle of the lot. It was so big that his neighbors in the semi-rural fishing town of Seabrook were, wor were worried that uh, it was going to be an apartment complex. There goes the neighborhood, right? Bunch of baby boomers with their noisy little families or, ew, druggies and their rock music or whatever else it was that people in the early 80s worried about. But no, no, sweet neighbors, it's going to be, oh, so much worse than that. Not an apartment complex. Uh, this is going to be a single home for one person. And because the sex offender registry isn't a thing yet, isn't going to be a, a conversation until 1994, it won't be anything closely resembling a law until 1996, all of which will be about a decade and a half too late to warn the citizens of Seabrook about who's building a house out by the bay. Like I said, this foundation slab is huge. And by the time it's done, this house... Uh, will be three stories of all steel frame wrapped entirely in brick, and it will contain 34,000 square feet. One more time for the kids in the back. 34,000 square feet. That's bigger than the Parthenon, smaller than the White House. Uh, you could fit my first apartment in this house 37 and a half times. It's huge. And again, it's for one dude. Um, the layout of this house is insane, but to so I can't really get into all the details of it or we'll be here all night, but I can give you a quick rundown. So there's two residential wings, each about 7,000 square feet on their own, uh, and in the middle of the house, like the cream and an Oreo sandwich, is the atrium. And this atrium is massive, and it's entirely enclosed in glass and plastic roofing, and inside there's hundreds of plants. There's a a 40-foot swimming pool with a diving board. There's a jacuzzi. It's got a little waterfall that trickles down to the diving board. And uh, across the middle of the atrium, there is a brick bridge covered in that uh, fantastic Kelly Green astroturf that was everywhere on patios in the 80s. Uh, and this bridge connects the two residential wings of the house at the second floor. If you want to get up from the first floor of the atrium to that bridge to get into the house on the second floor, you had to go up a spiral staircase that led down near the garage. The interior decor of this house was described by visitors at the time as, quote, contemporary holiday inn. In the early 80s, so let that aesthetic vision crystallize in your mind's eye. Lots of deeply textured carpet and naugahyde upholstery. There are uh, two fully stocked bars in this house, one in the ballroom and one in the game room. And by fully stocked, I mean there's beer, there's liquor, there's marijuana, there's heroin, you know, just the basics. And because Bill's classy now, he installs in this house a formal dining room with a 14-foot-long dining table and 
a restaurant-style buffet steam table, complete with sneeze guard. Proven that money can buy a lot of things, y'all, but it cannot buy good taste. But all of this just means that Bill's got a tacky house, right? It's the little details that tip this house over from eccentric to terrifying. The lot that it's sitting in is completely empty. There's a reflecting pond, sure, but there is a quarter mile of driveway that stretches from the road to the house, and there is nothing in between. There's just all this empty space, and the lot is bordered by a fence made out of brick and wrought iron bars. Speaking of wrought iron bars, on the house, every single window of this house is covered with bars. And if you're thinking, surely this man didn't cover every single window of this giant atrium with iron bars too, then honey, you are missing the point of this house. It's not just a mansion. It's not even just a monument to Bill's inflated opinion of himself. No, it's a cage. Iron bars don't just keep people out, y'all. They keep them in too. Once Bill got settled in at the mansion, it did not take long for him to develop a reputation amongst his neighbors. See, apparently, three years in prison and then blowing up his entire life and having to relocate to another state and rebuild from scratch had done nothing to diminish Bill's appetite for teenage boys. Parents in Seabrook learned pretty quickly, despite the 1980s and the fact that you just sort of let your kids run wild all day and hoped they made it home before the streetlights came on at night, the parents learned to warn their boys to stay away from the List property. After one too many stories of Bill inviting boys to come inside and swim in his pool and then watching them a little too closely. Now, <laughs> there are folks out there who will say that Bill List was gay. I am not one of those folks. Bill List was not a gay man. Bill List was a sexual predator, and his preferred prey was teenage boys. Now, every good predator needs a hunting ground, and Seabrook was not ripe for Bill's picking. It was a little too watchful, a little too wary, and a little too small. So he would hop in his shiny white Pontiac and drive on up the 40 minutes up I-45 to Houston, and he would hunt for boys there. Now, you may be wondering, where in the world, where in Houston, could there possibly be a ready population of teenage boys for Bill to just snatch up off the street? Well, I'm glad I'm pretending you asked. Houston is a major city. Um, currently in 2019, it is the fourth largest city in the United States. In the 80s, it had a population of about 1.5 million. So despite the reputation of Texas of being like ranch, 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 horse, ranch, uh, there's actually major metropolitan areas. And every major metropolitan area like Houston has a certain part of town. You know the one. The uh, nocturnal pop-up farmer's market of drugs and prostitution. The part of town that you drive through with your windows rolled up and your doors locked, if you drive through at all. Where the, the cops move through fast and the customers move through slow. Where the homeless population gathers. And in Houston in the 80s, that part of town was centered on the intersection... Intersection? Was centered on the intersection <laughs> of Westheimer Road and Montrose Boulevard. Now, the unfortunate reality of places like this is that they tend to be sort of the shore upon which lost souls are washed. And, and, on a, and a large percentage of the homeless population in the area at the time were teenage boys who had been kicked out of their homes for coming out to their parents as gay. This is not a phenomenon that's, that's limited to the 80s. We have not resolved this problem since. It is an ongoing issue. 
But for the purposes of this story, we're going to focus on the 80s. Um, these boys that live in the Westheimer Montrose area, they're desperate and they're kind of tragic. They're doing what they can to survive. They're sleeping behind grocery stores and dumpsters, like bouncing from halfway house to halfway house as best they can uh, and hustling to get through the day. They're uh, hooked on drugs. They're dealing drugs and they are turning tricks, prostituting themselves out just to be able to to afford the occasional roof over their heads or a hot meal. These are the kids that Bill is looking for. He would cruise down these streets in his shiny Pontiac, and he would offer these boys a chance to come to his house for free room and board and all the unlimited, uh, and all the unlimited booze and drugs they could possibly want in exchange for, well, exactly what you think it'd be in exchange for. It was sex. Now, according to Bill, what he was doing was not rape. Obviously, these boys knew what they were getting into. They knew exactly what they were agreeing to. He would lay it all out. You perform these particular sex acts in exchange for my generosity. And because they were agreeing to it, in Bill's mind, that was not rape. Never mind the financial coercion or the power dynamics or the fact that these kids were, for the most part, not old enough to vote, let alone consent to sexual activity. It's during these little misadventures of Bill's that he starts developing a reputation amongst the boys uh, in the Westheimer Montrose area for uh, sexual deviance. Put bluntly, Bill's into BDSM. He chooses his boys based on the circumference of their forearms, if that gives you entirely too much insight into the situation. Now, here's the thing. It is the official position of outlaws and scorned women that there ain't a damn thing wrong with homosexuality, or with exploration of kink, or with May-December relationships, or with the ethical pursuit of sex work, so long as it all occurs between enthusiastically consenting adults. Adults being the operative word, because that ain't what was happening here. Bill List was leveraging the power of his wealth and age and status to take sexual advantage of vulnerable, desperate teenage boys. So let's not get it twisted. Bill may be the murder victim in this story, but he is also the monster. So these boys that Bill would pick up, they would come home with him and they'd stay for a day, for a week, uh, however long they could stand each other until they were done with Bill or Bill was done with them. And then he'd stick them in the car, drive them on back up to Westheimer and drop them on the sidewalk again like an unwanted puppy. So Bill's got this rotating stable of homeless teenage junkie prostitutes, uh, and he's got illegal drugs all over the house, he can't exactly keep a live-in housekeeper, and he ain't about to scrub a couple of dozen toilets himself. So during some of his wanderings around Westheimer, he meets a young man by the name of Jeff. Now, Jeff is 22 years old, which makes him a little too old for Bill's taste, but he is exactly as morally flexible as Bill requires. See, what Bill needs is a live-in housekeeper and houseboy wrangler, someone who will make sure that the house is clean, uh, the dinner's on the table, and, uh, that, and that the teenage boys uh, are kept in check. Now, Jeff had a boyfriend at the time, a 15-year-old boy by the name of Joey, so Jeff's not exactly an angel himself, but he's also not an idiot. So when he agrees to move into this house with Bill, he did so on the condition that Bill agree to never lay a hand on Joey. Bill agrees to that, so then Jeff and Joey move in, and now, well, Bill's business is thriving, his retirement home boy cage is complete, he's got live-in houseboy managers, life is good if you're Bill. What could possibly go wrong? Well, his story's on a podcast right now, so I'm gonna say everything. 
everything could go wrong, because inevitably there would come a day when the sexual predator would misjudge his prey. On Saturday, October 13, 1984, in front of a convenience store on Westheimer Road, a teenage boy was about to get his ass kicked. The reason why is irrelevant and lost to time. It could have been any of a hundred different things. This particular boy isn't living on the streets because he's gay and disowned by his family. No, his, his situation is desperate, but it's not tragic like that. He's there mainly as a consequence of his own actions. See, this kid's angry. Angry at the world, at his dad for walking out, at his mom for bringing in a, a series of stepdads into his life, none of whom liked him very much and some of whom were violent about it. Uh, at the preppy kids from Friendswood and River Oaks who would come to his part of town to pick fights and hassle him for drugs. At the cops who would do absolutely nothing about that. Uh, at the car accident that crushed his pelvis when he was a kid and left him with a limp. At the kids at school who made fun of his limp and then wouldn't stop until he fed them their own teeth. This kid's a fighter, pathologically so. He had a temper that could start a brawl in an empty room, and it got him kicked out of every halfway house and the homes of every single member of, the, of his family. So here he is living on the streets doing what he has to do to survive, doing what they all had to do to survive. Which leads us to this fine October day where he's waiting out in front of a convenience store watching the shark circle, knowing that he's about to get jumped. And then all of a sudden his friend Tim walks up. Tim is... 17? He and Tim have hustled together from time to time. And Tim says to this kid, hey, Bill's here. Do you want to go for a ride with Bill? Well, everybody knows who Bill is. And it may not be the most attractive option, but it was certainly more attractive than getting your ass kicked in front of a convenience store. So this kid and Tim go over to Bill's shiny white Pontiac. Tim leans in the car window, strikes up the deal with Bill, and the boys get into the car. And this kid introduces himself to Bill as Smiley. Yeah, I said it. Smiley is his name. His legal name is Albert E. Homan, but he earned the nickname Smiley living on the streets and during a brief stint in prison for aggravated robbery. Now, if you listen to enough true crime podcasts, you know that aggravated robbery means that he stole something directly from someone else and he either frightened or harmed them to do it. So Smiley's no angel, right? But he has got a great smile dimples and all, and he can flash it like a ray of sunshine or a switchblade, depending on what he needs that smile to do. Now, I don't like to think about what Bill thought when he saw this kid coming towards his car. This half-grown man-cub, skinny in that street kid junkie kind of way, because it's what he is. He'd be handsome if he got a month of good meals in him, maybe, with his skin tanned to a golden glow from all that lack of shelter from the Texas sun cheekbones like a young Paul Newman, a fantastic smile, and he walks with a limp. Oof. Ain't nothing more appealing to a predator than wounded prey. Skinny street kids with busted legs don't run away, and they don't fight back. Or so Bill thought. Thus begins what had to have been the world's most uncomfortable car ride. Imagine you are 18 years old, and you are riding in a car for 40 minutes down the highway, with a man who is twice your size, three times your age, and is describing to you in graphic detail all of his favorite sexual things. And you know that, by the, that when you arrive at your destination, he is going to expect you to do those sexual things with him. 
<laughs> Full body shudder, right? But Smiley just smiles and he bides his time. He has no intention of ever having sex with Bill. His intentions include uh, getting a free ride down to Seabrook, uh, getting access to all of the booze and drugs and food and uh, shelter that he, that he can, maybe filling his pockets with anything that's not nailed down and bouncing out of there. What's Bill going to do? Call the cops? Report uh, that the teen prostitute that he brought home stole some stuff? Come on now. Smiley figures he's there a few days tops, right? Until they get to the mansion. Bill turns down that long driveway to the mansion and Smiley falls in love. I mean, this place is objectively hideous, right? But it is the biggest, most glorious place that Smiley has ever seen in his young life. Tim's been there before. He stayed with, uh, he stayed with Bill in the past. This is nothing new to him, but Smiley just can't even with this place. I imagine they're pulling in in the evening. The sun is setting over Galveston Bay behind the mansion. The sky is painted all purples and blues. And the mansion itself, as the car gets closer and closer, would have a, a warm glow coming from the atrium, shining out through the iron bars around its heart, beckoning Smiley in. This place, it represented everything this kid never knew he wanted until he saw it. Smiley just takes in luxury after luxury, and he cannot believe that all of this wonderment belongs to a nasty old pervert asshole like Bill. And as Bill pulls into the garage and, and brings the boys inside and, and lets them loose in the house like you would set down a couple of new puppies, put their little paws on the floor and let them go sniff around and get to know the place, he had no idea that he only had three days to live. He also had no idea who he was dealing with. This kid was no victim. He was no fluffy little puppy to bring home and play with. He was, at best, a half-starved coyote. Smiley was exactly the kind of charismatic, zero-fucks-given, natural-born outlaw who would have thrived in the wild, wild west. But he was born a century too late, so here, we, so here he was. A homeless junkie kid with a hate-on for all the haves in his world full of have-not. This is who Bill brought home with him that night. As my mama described it when I talked to her about this whole story, Bill finally met his match. This mansion out by the bay is suddenly a lot more like an all-steel cage. In one corner, we have Bill, the living embodiment of wealthy white male privilege who, who leverages his power over vulnerable teenage boys to take sexual advantage of them. In the other corner, we have Smiley, a walking simmering pot of anti-establishment rage with a chip on his shoulder the size of all Texas just looking for an excuse to boil over. Y'all, somebody ain't getting out of there alive. The first day or so of this new living arrangement went uh, fine, but then come Monday morning, Bill started assigning chores. He told Smiley to clean the pool, he told Tim to clean the kitchen, and he told Jeff to supervise both of them and make sure it got done. Then Bill hopped in his car and went to work. And then the chores promptly did not get done, because these boys were not professional housekeepers. They were literally just kids that he'd picked up off the street and plunked into his home and expected them to do things. So then Bill got home at the end of the day, found that the chores had not been done to his liking, and he was furious. I found reports that when Bill was unhappy with the domestic skills of these homeless teenage boys that he'd picked up off the street, he'd stalk around the house with his shotgun in the crook of his arm, just 
pointing out everything that hadn't been done well and yelling about it. There is a quote in this in a fantastic article uh, from the Houston Chronicle in which Jeff says, quote, he was a very hard man to get along with, very hard to understand, and people just couldn't deal with him. Other than sexually, he was disagreeable, constantly bitching, and he would bitch on and on and on. He didn't care who was there. It was his house, and whoever was there had to listen to it. After a while, I was able to calm him down some. If you did what Bill wanted, everything was okay. If you bucked the system, it was over. He always said, I've never made anybody do anything they didn't want to. That was true. He never raped anyone. End quote. This is Jeff talking. I've already established that uh, we here at Outlaws and Scorned Women disagree entirely with this, with this assessment. <clears throat> Resume quote. He never raped anyone. He never forced anyone to do anything, but he had these boys in situations where they didn't have any place to go. At first, he seemed real nice. After a while, you started thinking, I'm getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop. End quote. So the housework that Bill is assigning to his new houseboys is not getting done. And Bill's all pissed off about it. Smiley couldn't care less. He mostly ignores Bill. Or worse, argues back with him. And there's Jeff in the middle trying to mediate and play peacemaker with everybody. As far as I can tell from my research, Bill never actually propositioned Smiley. So maybe it was just frustration with being unable to have sex with the newest boy that he brought home. Or maybe uh, Bill was just a genuinely terrible monster person. Or maybe it was a combination of both. But, but at some point... During Smiley and Tim's stay, Bill waited for Jeff to get shot up on some heroin and pass out in another room, and then he grabbed Tim and Joey and took them up to his master bedroom suite. Now, there are no details, thank God, about what exactly happened in that bedroom that night. Only that whatever it was, it horrified Tim to such a degree that he had to step out of the room into the hallway and vomit on the floor. By Wednesday morning, Bill's woken up pissed off. He shakes Smiley out of bed and lets him know that he's going to be taking him back to Westheimer that night. Then he scoops his breakfast out of the buffet steam table in the dining room and bitches some more about all the chores that haven't been done around the house, and he hops in his car and goes off to work. Now remember, the entire agreement in which Jeff lives in this house and manages things for Bill is contingent on Bill keeping his hands off of Jeff's 15-year-old boyfriend, Joey. So when Joey sits Jeff down after Bill goes to work and tells him that Bill raped him, and that Bill had been raping him for a while now, Jeff is furious, and as far as he's concerned, the deal is off. So here, so imagine them all sitting in a room. You've got Jeff, livid, and capital D, done with Bill. You've got Joey, uh, traumatized and looking for a little vengeance. You've got Tim, horrified by the events that he witnessed in that bedroom. And you've got Smiley, who hates the hell out of Bill on principle. But now he knows for sure that Bill's a monster. And into that room, Jeff says, someday somebody's going to kill that man. And nobody disagreed. And an idea began to take shape. So, pause. Why are they even thinking about this? Why are they even contemplating murder? Why not just call the police? Bill had raped a 15-year-old boy repeatedly. His house was full of illegal drugs. Things, things were illegal. There was actionable stuff for police in that house. Why don't these boys just call for help? There's a phone. Look, I don't know for sure because I wasn't in the room. I was in preschool at the time, but I can imagine. These are boys who were consistently failed by the system, or in Smiley's case, run afoul of it. They exist on the fringe of society. For kids like these, cops don't exist to help. Cops exist to hassle. 
Authority wasn't exactly a force for good in their world. Can you imagine calling the police on the richest, most influential man in town and trying to lodge any kind of complaint against him? It would be Bill's word against theirs. And Bill had money. He had power. He had lawyers. He had all of these things that these boys would never have. He had all the cards. He had all the power in this situation. And that was the way Bill liked it. That was exactly how he constructed the situation. But nowhere in his ego did it occur to him that it would turn against him like this. That isolating these boys and removing them even from the fringes of society to make them his own personal playthings would, would put them in the position of having to take matters into their own hands. But that's exactly what they did. So on that morning, Wednesday, October 17th, 1984, the houseboys of the mansion formed a plan. And honestly, they probably never would have if Bill hadn't brought home a ringleader like Smiley. As plans go, the plot to murder Bill was about as uh, delicate and nuanced as you would expect from this particular group of boys. <clears throat> it was unanimously decided that Smiley was going to be the one to do the deed. So they got a hold of the shotgun, the one that Bill liked to walk around with in the house whenever he was pissed off, and Smiley fired a couple of practice shots, just to make sure that the kickback wasn't going to knock him over, and to see if the neighbors were going to respond to gunshots in the house. Well, the house was isolated enough, and it was the middle of the damn day, and frankly, this was Texas, so no, the neighbors didn't report any gunshots, if they heard them at all. The boys put a padlock on the rear gate into the house, and then they broke off keys in the locks of every other exterior door except for the one leading from the garage into the house. That particular door led to the spiral staircase that would go from the first floor up onto the, the bridge across the atrium. The plan was for Joey to be lookout out at front of the house and let them know when Bill was pulling up. Then Smiley would post up on the bridge across the atrium, and Tim would take up a position opposite Smiley. Because Smiley knew he could shoot the man, but he didn't, he didn't think he could do it while he was looking at him. So once Bill came in through the garage, he was going to come up the spiral stairs, and Tim was going to call Bill's name to turn his head. And then Smiley was going to shoot him. Then once Bill was dead, the plan was for the boys to rifle Bill's pockets, get his wallet, get his keys, uh, load everything that they uh, wanted to steal from the house into Bill's car, and take off. Well, that plan didn't take very long to formulate, and they had all day to keep occupied. So... Smiley got high and took a nap, while the other boys did everything they could to make 100% sure they could not change their minds. They went about making absolutely certain that if they didn't kill Bill, he was going to kill them. So they started destroying the house. Joey took particular delight in shattering everything, ripping up every single potted plant, throwing them all into the pool, throwing furniture into the pool, pouring bleach all over the beds. Uh, they all got a hold of, uh, of bleach and, and markers and food out of the fridge and scribbled things in the carpet and on the walls. Stuff like, he was sick, or have a nice day, because it's the 80s, or no more fist for list. Joey grabbed every piece of china, every plate that he could get his hands on and shattered them on the floor of the ballroom. All the food in the fridge was dragged out and just smeared on everything. Plants were rammed through the, the drywall. They destroyed this place. Some of the boys got on the phone now. This is 1984, so it's all landlines all the time. And they started making international long-distance phone calls to rack up the phone bill just as high as they could possibly get it. They had a 20-minute phone conversation with some waitress at an all-night diner in Australia 
Because they were slamming their hands on the metaphorical self-destruct button just as hard as they could, there had to be no going back. Burn the whole bridge, right? So when Smiley woke up from his nap and he saw everything that had been done to the house, oh, it broke his whole heart. He loved that house. But the damage is done at this point. So he adds one small bit to the chaos. He gets a hold of a marker and finds a section of wall that'll be difficult to miss. And he writes a little note in eerily lovely cursive handwriting. And the note says, Bill List is a very sick man. He is going to die. Smiley, 1984. He signed his work. This was basically a graffiti letter of intent. The day wears on, and finally, Joey pipes up from the front of the house, shouting that Bill's home. Everybody takes their places. Jeff and Joey go upstairs so they can watch Bill die through a window. Tim takes his position to distract Bill, and Smiley posts up on the bridge across the atrium. Bill pulls up to the house, and he can't get in, he can't get in, he gets to the garage and finds the only unlocked door, and by now he's pissed, because he can see the mess. So he comes in through the garage, he takes two steps up those spiral stairs. Tim goes, hey Bill! Bill turns, and boom! A single shotgun blast takes the back of Bill's head clean off. The boys rifle through uh, through Bill's pockets. They get his wallet. They get his keys. They get all the loot they loaded into the trunk of the car. Everybody gets in the car, and by the time the sun is setting over Galveston Bay, those boys are gone. And Bill's lying in a pool of his own blood at the base of the spiral stairs of his mansion. The aftermath of Bill's death was, uh, was a brief affair. These weren't exactly criminal masterminds trying to get away with murder. Hell, Smiley signed his name on the wall. As they drove away from the house, Smiley threw the shotgun out the window somewhere along I-10. They swung by Bill's office in the hopes of robbing the place, but people were working even late at night, so they gave up on that idea. Instead, they went around to convenience stores trying to cash checks and buy stuff with Bill's credit cards. It was one of those convenience stores that called Bill's office the next morning, wondering why some teenage boy who was decidedly not a William Gerald List was trying to cash checks in that name. And it was at Bill's office that the employees realized they hadn't seen their boss, and they called the police. And the police found Bill's body in a 34,000-square-foot crime scene. And frankly, it took longer to process the crime scene than it took to find those boys. The body was found on Thursday morning. By Thursday evening, they were in custody. Joey was tried for his involvement as a juvenile, and we don't know any more about his fate than that, because he was 15 at the time, and the state of Texas protects the identity of minors involved with crimes. Joey's probably not even his real name. I'm not 100% sure what happened to Tim. Most reports uh, point towards him fleeing to Illinois with a, on a plane ticket bought with Bill's credit card by Jeff, who then spent 15 years in prison for using Bill's credit card to buy stuff. Smiley confessed to the murder. He pled guilty. And when asked why he killed Bill, he explained that he wanted to make sure that what happened to Joey never happened to another boy ever again. And honestly, that may be why, in the state of Texas, notorious for its uh, generous application of the death penalty, a confessed murderer with prior convictions only got 45 years in prison, of which he served 30. He's been out on parole for a while now. As for the mansion itself... It stood abandoned and empty since that day in 1984. Nobody wanted a thing to do with the property where so many horrible things happened, not the least of which, and not the worst of which, was the murder of a man. 
After a decade or more of trying to sell the property, the city of Seabrook finally just tore it down for scrap in 1996. And people flocked from miles around to buy pieces of it, so that they could sit in their living room one day and point up at a shelf and say, you see that brick right there? That brick came from the Toddville murder mansion. And then they could tell the story that I just told you. Thank you all for listening. We do appreciate you. I promise we'll be back to regular programming in our next episode. If you're enjoying the show, we hope that you'll subscribe to the show. Maybe leave us a five-star rating and a review to warm the chilly black lumps of coal that we call hearts. Or hop on over to patreon.com slash OSWpodyall, that's O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L, and support the show in exchange for badass perks like exclusive access to bloopers or rabbit hole plunges into history and legal trivia, stuff like that. You can find us on all the social medias at OSWpodyall, again, that's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L, that's where I'll post pictures of stuff like Smiley and Bill and the creepy-ass mansion. Or you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. As always, we are not investigators or journalists. That legwork has already been done, so there will be source links for this episode in the show notes. And that's about it. So y'all have a good one, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.